Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Please welcome GA star and mental health advocate Shane Carty. Welcome. We got the sky blue light on you there, Noel, for the intro. <laughs> it's the fine details, lads. I didn't get the memo, lads. I feel so unaddressed. Jeez. You look great. You look, <laughs> you look great. How are you keeping? Good, good. Great hey, to be here. Slightly. That yeah. was asking up there, am I fine? I'm absolutely shit myself. Now. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. There's two of us here, so. <laughs> It'll be all right. Yeah. Well, we were talking backstage, Jared, and you do a lot of public speaking like ourselves, but it's always a bit nerve-wracking, isn't it? No matter how many times you do it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, as in, to be honest, as in, to kind of think about this nine, ten years ago, to be speaking in front of, you know, a room of, of strangers when I couldn't even tell my mum or dad or people closest to me, you know, with deeps and darkest secrets, and to share that with people, you know, it's it's an underlying kind of passion of mine to come from the point where I once was, to be able to share that message as we touched upon there in the, in the video and um, you know the privileged position that I'm in you know whether like it or not people look up to me and I have an effect further afield and I really do think so when I do get nervous when I do kind of potentially overthink things I, I'm always bringing myself back to if it's just one person in that room can be affected positively does me the world of good absolutely absolutely you're in recovery as well you're in recovery from a depression so we were talking backstage as well about um you know, recovery not being like a process where you go to treatment and you get out, you get your certificate and you're recovered, go on about your business. It's an ongoing thing, isn't it? Absolutely. I think I found it difficult in the, in the opening kind of years in St. Pat's. I was very reluctant in the fact that I was that lonely, depressed figure that, you know, I was for a number of years and I was that acceptance piece over the first couple of weeks in St. Pat's that I had to come to that realisation of who I was. And what I was dealing with and, you know, from there on out, it was very much a mindset thing of I'm going to be looking after this every single day. You know, we, we spoke about it there in, in the back of better physical health, but I put on an equal power as your mental health is as important as your physical health. You know, I train it every single day. I'm 10 years nearly out of, out of St. Pat's and I still go to my psychologist. I see it as a little NTT for my mind. I see it as a, like a little top up. Sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm like, I have nothing to talk to you about today. And then I often find, often find after a bit of conversation, he's like, actually, I had a bit of stress with that, I had a bit of anxiety about that. And, you know, we unravel the conversation. And I'm always kind of adding strings to my bow each and every single time I go to him. So it's a never-ending process and it's something that I'm completely fine with. How did it all start for you? How, like, when did you actually start to notice that you were feeling unwell? I, I guess for me, it was the middle of fifth year. Um and I would have been so naive and thinking as in like it was hormonal changes going on in my body because 10 years ago, you know, if mental health was spoken about, it was very much a taboo subject. 
Um, and the difficulty in it for me was I was living this idyllic life, you know, representing Dublin, having loving friends, loving family, you know, from the outside looking in, nothing could go wrong in, in my life. And it was the middle of fifth year where I'd started kind of thinking like I would do a match on that particular weekend or an out with friends, out with, with a family member or anything like that. I was getting up in these mornings going, I'm not looking forward to it. Yeah. It was just that, it, it was just something deeper than just not getting up in great form. It was just something deeper than that. But I didn't have the education or the know-how to realise what eventually transpired into be, being depression then. Yeah, you, you have a very good book as well. And uh, in the book you talk about, you know, I know a lot of fellas, my nephew included, Kian, like they throw their hand at that in basketball, hurling, soccer. Some fellas are just gifted at sport. And you are one of those people who seem to excel at whatever you throw your hand to. Um, but you know, when you're a child and you're playing, it's kind of not as competitive, it's more for fun. And you didn't seem to have the mental health issues back as a child, a younger child. Do you think that as you got noticed as a standout athlete and you started getting put up on the pedestal and getting in the Dublin team, do you think that that pressure may have contributed towards the depression? I, th I think so. And it's a very good question in terms of us in, you know, the outside looking in as my life evolved and my Dublin career started from a very early age and I started to be getting noticed at this kind of 14, 15, 16 year old self. And, you know, your real Dublin career does start in the kind of the minor years, you know, under 17s, under 18s. And in a, in a strange way, I was an outlier in terms of the pressures that I found on my life was nothing to do with sport. It was such a strange thing in thinking my training was my my outlet. That was my crutch medication in front of 82,500 people. And it's crazy to say I didn't feel pressure. I loved every single moment of it because I brought myself back to my early years with my dad up in, up in the guard club and kicking 70, 80 balls of free kicks and everything else and bringing myself to that moment in Crow Park that I trained for so many years to kick that free or kick that score. And it was just anything outside of that was pressure for me. It was everything outside of those white lines. And I was in that 60 minutes, 70 minutes, whatever it be in a game. I couldn't think of anything else. I was getting away from the real depressed, lonely figure that I really was in actual reality. So it was everything outside of sport. And I know I'm a complete outlier in that as well. Do you know, for somebody that has a personality within the media, Dublin footballer, you know, the Dublin team, when you all are many times in the last 10 years, how difficult was it for you to actually start talking about mental health? Men in, men in general have a difficulty to talk about what's going on for them in their heads and how they're feeling. But just for you, because everybody looks up to you, how, how was that? Was that maybe stopping you from actually talking earlier? Yeah, definitely. Within those two years, and I don't like to say I have a regret in my story. If I was to nitpick, it would be that I didn't speak up on day one in the middle of fifth year where it all started for me, you know, and... It was a two-year span of a huge, hugely difficult inner conversation that I was having with myself because my life was going on an upward curve in terms of my sporting life, my family life, my friends. I was a Dublin minor footballer. I was lucky enough to be part of a Dublin senior football team still in sixth year at 18 years of age. And all the while, my depression was going on on the opposite side. I was getting to the point of, and not to be dark and bleak about it, but it was the reality of suicidal ideations began to enter my head in the final six months of those two years. So... The conversation that I wanted to have was so difficult because I didn't have anyone else. I didn't have that lantern of that someone else who was going through a difficult time. You know, as I spoke about there earlier on, mental health wasn't spoken about. So I was thinking, how can I say this to anyone? My friends, my family, anyone at all. 
they'd simply think it was lying. So that was a difficulty within it for those two years. You know, I so wish, you know, looking back in hindsight, I've seen both sides of the coin. You know, if I had known, I would have spoken up on day one in the middle of fifth year. What about, like, when people look at you and, you know, you're a good-looking lad, you have, the world is at your feet. No, he's a good-looking man, like, be sure. <laughs> you trying to tell us something, James. <laughs> no. But, like, people might look at you and think, like, you have the ideal life, you know, mm. but they don't know what's going on behind closed doors in your head. Um, did, did you feel a pressure to sustain that persona and did that maybe impede your ability to speak out? Yeah, absolutely. And particularly in the, the latter months of where, where the kind of suicidal ideations became more prominent and it wasn't something that I wanted to act, act upon or think upon, but I could never leave it too far by my side. And it was that pressure aspect of thinking, as I said, just coming off an All-Ireland minor final win, picking up the Sam Maguire after a year and a half into my journey, a week later after lifting that cup, the first signs of suicidal ideations, you know, it was, it was that constant kind of conveyor belt of going back and forth. You know, I wanted a piece of life, but I didn't know how to actually verbalise that. And it was that constant back and forth, back and forth. And I was lucky in the fact that I did have friends and family and, you know, that support system around me when I so deeply did need it. Because the reality of it was, if I didn't speak up after those two years, I, I, I wouldn't be sitting here. I absolutely wouldn't. So to be able to live your life like that, you know, it must have been very difficult because when you're you're inside, you're feeling like you're just going to crumble and everything is going to fall apart. And then everybody else is looking at you on the outside and they can see the smile on your face. You're wearing all these different masks then for the different groups that you're around. That must have been one, more, one of the most difficult things you've you had to do. That must have burnt you from your energy. It was. And it wasn't sustainable because I, I look at it in the fact of you know, I, pro I probably should have been given an Oscar award for the acting performance I did for the, the two years, and um, particularly over the last number of months. But it was, as all Irish mammies do, they, they see beneath that, beyond that mask, um, and seeing the cracks and signs that were beginning to show. Because, as you say, I, I was living two lives. I was living the life that people thought I was living and uh, all the success and all the love around me, but internally it was completely opposite. And Eventually, the physical signs began to start showing. I'd come in from two hours of crying in the car. I'd park down in our local train station in Port Marnock and just cry. And I, and I couldn't I, I couldn't bring myself to to show that and verbalise that in front of my, my friends and family. But when I was coming in with bloodshot eyes, pale, expressionless, worn figure, my mum and dad start, started to begin to see these kind of these signs and symptoms. Now, not to the extent of where... They thought it what really was over the last two years. They just thought it was something going on, but not to the severity that it actually was. Because you didn't want to worry them. No, absolutely. And and to, to give kind of context to the room as well, in and around that time that I was trying to build up the courage to speak up, to maybe say something, um, you know, in and around that time, it, it was uh, actually down, down in Cork, we were playing a friendly game. Uh, we we're gearing up as representatives. A friendly between Cork and Dublin. Uh, well, I, I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> A, a battle, a battle, <laughs> Go, going going down, taking a trip down to Cork. And my mum and dad, right to the state, they travel right around the country. So they went down to the game. And unfortunately, unbeknownst to me, I was playing the game. My mum receives a phone call off my uncle to say that her dad had passed away, that my granddad passed away. So, you know, my, my reaction to that when I came in, coming off the team bus was, I'm sorry. And I left the room. And that was the first warning sign for them because I, I would have been so close to my granddad. I would have visited him every couple of weeks and telling them I, I should have scored another 10 goals in whatever game I was playing in. So 
that was the first sign and that kind of courage that I was beginning to build up to say something to them. It was certainly quashed. And unfortunately, as I was beginning to build up the courage a couple of weeks after the funeral, my nanny had passed away too, both my mum's side. So within that six weeks period, that courage that I was beginning to build up was certainly then, you know, put aside. I can't burn it. Right. Certainly wasn't. It absolutely wasn't. And I just felt whatever I'm going through in my life can't compare to what you know, my mum in particular has gone through. Yeah. Can you remember the moment where you realised that it wasn't, uh, your low mood wasn't the result of a hormonal teenage or moody and it was a bit more uh, serious? Can you remember the moment or how, how you realised that? <laughs> to be honest, it was, it wasn't only until I got into St. Pat's or it wasn't even, I, I would say, probably the initial conversation that I had with Desi Farrell. Um, your manager? My manager at the time, my, my, my Dublin uh, under 21 manager at the time. He actually had previous depression and he was also a previous psychiatric nurse. So I met him two days before he penultimately went into St. Patrick's Mental Hospital. It was the first time that I was piecing together what it actually was and I was verbalizing what was really going on. And he was saying, look, I, I think this could be this could be depression and what you've been going through the last couple of years. And to hear that was such a difficult thing because I was supposed to be this strong, athletic, you know, figure in front of everyone else. And to me, that at the time, certainly isn't now, it was a sign of weakness. I was like, I can't be noticed as that person. I can't be that person. And obviously in the aftermath of it, I know it's a sign of strength to be able to accept with who you are and what you are and that label with it. But at the time, I simply couldn't. And that was the first time that I had really known what depression was and what I was going through. Do you know, when you were in St. Pat's, did you, did you learn about what was going on for you? Did you learn what was going on for you in your head? Were you talking to counsellors on a daily basis? Or was it just the medication? Or? It, it, it was it was a bit of everything. And, and even on the medication kind of side, I was so reluctant in the fact at the start, I was thinking, I, I don't want to be medicated here. I just don't want tablets and everything will be okay. I, I didn't believe in it. And it wasn't until my dad had come in and just said, look, this medication kind of side of things may be one of 10 crutches that you will need in your overall kind of recovery. I accepted that. And then the the kind of therapy sessions, be it a one-to-one -one therapy or group therapy sessions that I was going to, was it was really enlightening. I think even the group therapy sessions, sitting in a room and actually being able to relate to people around the room. And I, and I remember to not to go off on a tangent, but one of the, the funny stories in one of the toolboxes that I have is a mental health toolbox. I, I coined it back in St. Pat's and it was my group therapy session. And we we're going around the room, what's in your uh, mental health toolbox? And I'm speaking about my top three things. It's physical exercise, it's a podcast or a playlist that brings me to a happier time and place. And number three is meeting up with a, fr a friend or a family member for a cup of coffee. And I turned to the right of me and there was a 19-year-old male, as it were, I was 19 at the time as well. And they're asking him and he said, um, I do a bit of knitting. <laughs> and yeah, I was like, what the f... I don't know if I'm loud, yeah, I was like, what is this? We're all lunatics, but I was like, uh, <laughs> what's this lunatic knitting for? And my dad being the inner city dub, I tried the next day, shamelessly, and it didn't work for me. And my dad came in and absolutely, he was like, what the fuck are you knitting for? <laughs> you know, so, but it's, it's a prime example of... It's very individualistic. What makes me tick may not make you tick, but it's about going after. Yeah, yeah. He should have took a video of it, brought it, showed the footballers in the club. Oh, <laughs> I've shot a week's on it. But I'd say it must be very difficult for a parent. You know, if you're, you know, you, Dave, it sounds like you come from a very supportive family. You know, they travel around the country, which uh, they provide you with every opportunity. Like, if you're from the parent's perspective, it must be very difficult. They might think, like, what is this something I did? Is it my parent? Then you know, can, can you imagine what it's like for your, how, how your parents experienced it. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and as I said, I, I couldn't I couldn't wish for better parents and overall kind of family sense, my three sisters as well, you know, they came in every single day to St. Pat's and support me and support me right to this day. They support me in anything that they do, but in particular my mental health. And I think in around that time, it was, it was an onus on me then to, to take them on that journey with me. You know, I had to, as much as I had to educate myself, I had to educate them. You know, there was that kind of question of, could we have done more? Could we have seen something and I assured them as in like, no one, no one could have spotted it. It wasn't anything to do with their wrongdoings or anything like that. But all the while I said, look, I'm going to take you along this journey, these ups and downs, the trials and tribulations as the depression is, and I'm going to educate you as much as I can. I'm going to tell you as much as I can. And that was such a nice kind of learning curve for them and me as well, because the once, I would say, silent conversation that we weren't having was now an everyday thing. And it was so refreshing for them. I could come in, even though it was a time where I could say, gone through a difficult time, bit stressed with X, Y, and Z. They were happy. They were delighted. I was like, okay, how can we help you? And that conversation, you know, it was, it was hugely beneficial. Yeah. What kind of tools did um, did you get from St. Pat's that you brought home and, and you used to get you through your days? I think from, from a simplistic kind of point of view, I, I think one for me was the, the planning out of my day. Um, I'm a very kind of structured kind of individual and and for me, and it sounds so simple, away from the kind of cognitive behavioral therapy sessions and the more in kind of depth kind of detail that we do have. For me, it's right to this day, I still do have a um, very kind of visual person. I have a calendar in my room and I have it mapped out Monday to Sunday and I always had three things in it. I had one was a non-negotiable which is for some people better be college or work or whatever it may be, whether we like it or not, we have to go to it or do it. Number two is something to stimulate your mind. And ironically enough, it was it was reading at the time, although I'm somehow an author, I'm not overly academic at all. Um, but number three is then something that I can look forward to. In my case, it was sport, but I planned it every single day. So I had a non-negotiable that I didn't quite look forward to, but it could always have then that kind of third thing of something to look forward to. In my case, it was sport. That was a huge learning curve for me in, in, in St. Pat's. And that was something that I've taken beyond to this day. That kind of structure piece of having something there each and every single day to look forward to. Yeah, you just spoke about their sport. It's so important for everybody. Just even the physical exercise, it just tends to burn off that extra bit of energy that we have, the jittery energy. Like sport was obviously very important in your life, and and it is both of mine and James's as well. You know, um, but if do you think there's anything else that could have been spotted maybe uh, by anybody back then? I really, I, from from my side, I think it was the the opening of the door and people in the latter kind of months when they'd asked me, they opened up that door in terms of that conversation going, is everything okay? Because I think from conversations I did have with people was the last five or six months were visibly, you know, me deteriorating to the extent that they didn't actually know. But it was- Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Certainly a door that they did open and and my fault in the end was I didn't accept that you know, opening door moment for me. And I often find that on the flip side of this now, when I, I talk to people or I'm kind of helping out people as well or trying to as best I can, if I notice even the smallest of the thing, I always have that opening door moment. And I had I had a real kind of case of it about 12 months ago. I had, had my friends. It's gone through a bit of a difficult time. We're talking about signs and symptoms, quite withdrawn, not quite being himself. And I had noticed this and I had asked him, is everything okay? I said, no, no, I'm sound. Don't worry about it. I knew there was something up. But to explain that to people in the in the audience, you have days where you don't want to talk and you have days where you do want to talk. I just happened to catch him on a day where he didn't want to talk. And it was only a couple of months after that he'd said, Look, can we have a can we have a bit of a chat here? I know you said it to me a while ago, but you know, c- can we have a bit of a bit of a chat here? And it it was huge benefit for him and me as well. Um, you know, that was a huge learning for me. And I, I don't really know how I got onto that. I'm going off on a bit of a tangent. Because me and Timmy know each other so well now. And you know, over the last few months, not th- times can be tough for people, you know what I mean? Including us. And uh, Timmy's most emotionally intelligent person I ever come across, you know. And he knows, like, if there's something up. And he'll always be straight out with you. Is everything all right? Seem a bit off. You know, and it just allows you then to say it. It might be something, it might be something very small, but it might be big in your head. But when you, when you say it to him and he re- lays it back to you, you get a new perspective on it. It's just like if you walk into anybody's company, you're going to feel it straight away. Um, well, I do anyway if I'm walking in somewhere and I can feel something's not easy. Now, it might be something that I'm feeling, but then again, if you ask the person, is, is everything okay? It definitely makes the mood a little bit easier. It definitely makes it easier for me if they are okay, but if they're not okay and I'm feeling something, they might be a little low on their own lives because sometimes we kind of, we, we do put on that mask but others that are in your company, they can see beyond the mask and they can see the pain, they can feel it from you. you know. And that's the way I do feel it sometimes. I, I can feel it from people. I can feel that there's something going on from. And, you know, I don't say it straight away. You might just leave them off for a while and then you just might catch them off the blue and just say, are you okay? You know, is, is everything okay? And they might open up or they won't, or they might open up at the end because now they're in their head and they saying, this is my opportunity to have have a chat with someone. So it's very important. Do you think that, you know, in your own case, do you think that um, maybe in in school, um, education around mental health literacy and emotional intelligence might have helped you to identify the low mood and maybe uh, provide treatment a little bit sooner? Absolutely. And as I, <clears throat> I touched upon there, as in like, it wasn't spoken about, you know, I, I'm often, and I'm very, very privileged in the fact that I've been able to go around the country over the last number of years to speak to people in school, whether it be from first to sixth year and educate them around my story. I'm not going to give them a whole host of answers, but it's my particular experience and hopefully they can take something from it. And my time back in, in school, I'm sure everyone can attest to it, the, you know, these waste of time sorry for any geography teacher here waste of time geography trips that you go on <laughs> and whatever else hopefully there isn't any geography teachers but I, I'm always trying to relay the fact of 
the education piece, catch it before it actually goes to a severe level. As I said, I'm trying to get people to the fact of make this an every single day conversation, you know, arm yourself with the tools and resources, that mental health toolbox. If you do so happen to come into a bad or difficult day, you have that education. And to start that at such an early age was a regret of mine. I wish I did have it. And that's where I'm trying to relay my message to people. Educate yourself. It may not click for you right now. It may not be going. We, we spoke about it there, about the son or daughter going, what are you talking about, mom or dad? Like, as in, what are you on about? But as in, like, eventually it will click because you are going to come through a difficult time and it's about that, you know, mental health toolbox dipping into it each and every single day then. Yeah, well, I remember uh, we did a talk for the school one time and uh, it was around drug education and stuff like that. But, you know, for, for myself, when I was about 17, uh, I, I had a suicide attempt, but it was after a, a binge of ecstasy and cocaine and alcohol and tablets and a, a really low crash, you know. Mm -hmm. And I remember I convinced myself that I was better off out of this world. And what prospect have you got in life and stuff like that? But as I got older, I would still have those crashes, but I know it would pass but now when you're younger, you don't have the experience in life to know that this is a moment in time. You'll wake up in the morning with a hangover, but you'll be a little bit better, do you know? Um, do, you know do, do you think that that type of drug education, mental health education is important, you know, so people can identify that this too shall pass, you know, get young kids to understand that this too shall pass. You know, we've had a lot of suicides in our neighbourhood in the last 12 months, you know, kids that think that the, the world is over at, at such a young age. I, de I definitely think as in like the education piece around around everything from drug addiction to, to mental health and you know I, I think we touched upon it there in, in the back in terms of going back to my own experience in terms of if you weren't talking about sport you weren't talking to me about anything I was so tunnel vision in the fact that the only thing all my eggs were in the one basket it was 100% in the, in the sport and basket and that was it and I wasn't devoting time to at, at that time now it was education, my my social life, my relationships, my friendships, everything else. I wasn't devoting each and every single kind of segment of my time. It was 100% all in for sport. And around that time was the education piece in St. Pat's that I had learned that if I devote 20% here, 20% there, 20% there, each and everything, if I'm happy in my work life, my relationships, my friendships, it's going to have a tenfold effect on my sport and life and vice versa. You know, we all have different aspects of our life, whether it be those kind of four components. If we devote enough time to each and every single one of them, we're going to be happier across the board and that. Absolutely. So it's education above all else. When I was working in drug and alcohol services there for a couple of years, we used to do this tool with uh, some of the service users of the Wheel of Life. Some of you might not. But it's like looking at your life in a wheel and there's different segments in the wheel. Relationships, finance, education, social life, fun, you know. And... Uh, I used to do it myself to show it as an example to show those, you know, you, you score that part of your life on a scale of one to 10. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that the more balanced the wheel is, the better your life, quality of life. But if there's a, if there's nine, nine, nine and a two, you know, it's out of balance. And for me, it was always the fun one seemed to be around the tree because life is so busy and mm -hmm. you don't have time to socialize and stuff like that. But like, if you're throwing all your eggs into one part of your life and you're neglecting the fun side of your life or the relationships or the education and it's all in sport, it's an unhealthy balance, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and I remember when I was, um, when my mum used to say it when I was the naive 15, 16 year old self, she used to always be like, broaden your horizons, broaden your horizons. Here's a newspaper, read that. And I was like, will you fuck off? Like as in, you know, get away from me. I only realised then in St. Pat's was that light bulb moment for me there. That's what she meant. 
broaden your horizons, put the eggs into different kind of segments of your life. And it will have that tenfold effect on, on on everything, absolutely everything right across the board. And it was that small little thing of these little nuggets of information that my mom and dad were giving me when I was younger, when I was naive, when I was uneducated around everything, that it was then that kind of light bulb moment in St. Pat's that I was thinking, that's exactly what they meant. And I'm trying to, again, relay that fact to the younger generation and people just in general as well, who, who may not be as educated around it, to go after it as much as you can. Do you know, when you went into St. Pat's, did you feel the pressure was off you? All the pressure at home maybe to be this uh, Dublin footballer. So when you went in there, you probably had a bit of clarity for the first time in your life and you were able to look at things a little bit more in depth. Is that what? Did you have more awareness when you went in there or did you start understanding about the thoughts and how you were feeling? Did you have more clarity then? Yeah, absolutely. And But I think even in the first kind of couple of weeks, I was still that tunnel vision teenager of sport was the only thing going on in my life. And it wasn't straight away. It was the kind of light bulb moment after a couple of weeks where I, I spoke upon there earlier on about the pedestal that I was cast up on when I was younger. And I never wanted to step up upon it. I never wanted to be that person up in the limelight. And I said, I'm going to have to, when I was looking around St. Pat's and I was seeing people from 18 years of age to 80 years of age, male and female, going through equally as difficult a time as me. And I said, I've shied away from this pedestal. I've shied away from this limelight. For once in my life, I'm going to have to step up here. And again, that effect that I have further field, and I really do think, to make a public with where I was. And it came out publicly. Um, I didn't realise the... I would say the the reach and the stretch that I did have. I, I delete myself off social media. I don't know if anyone remembers. Remember the, the app um, Viber? I'm I'm dinosaur here. Um, I <laughs> like delete the, the WhatsApp, <laughs> the burner phone, and in, in Um I deleted myself off like WhatsApp, Instagram, uh, Facebook. I had absolutely no connection to the outside world, and for me, it was that release of pressure of once I kind of put that message out there, that going, okay, I'm doing some good for someone else because I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, what I've gone through for those two years. And after those couple of weeks, nine weeks thereafter was, I wasn't playing sailing, yeah. but it was certainly a massive, massive weight off my shoulders to be like, okay, I can be myself. And I remember Mick Galvin, one of my coaches came in, he said, if you focus on your mental health for the next two or three months, you've 78 years of your life to look forward to. And it sounds like such a simple thing, but when I put it in that context, it was that release off me and I could solely go after my mental health. And it was it was an incredible journey that I went on for those eleven weeks. What was it like in, what was it like being in a psychiatric hospital for eleven weeks? Like people might have a idea of a psychiatric hospital from the media, like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, or <laughs> you know, the other one was Leonardo DiCaprio. What was it like being a patient in there? Like, what was the days like? What was the staff like? And the other patients, what was it? What was it like? Yeah, I, th I think the only touched upon it there when I, when I was woken up in, in St. Probably the, not the best light to paint St. Pat's in. I was woken up, I'd taken a panic attack, how I'd ended up in St. Pat's. And I'd woken up, and there was two softly spoken nurses on either side, and one of them was holding a fucking syringe uh, to take my bloods. Now I thought I was introduced to, you're in St. Patrick's Mental <laughs> Hospital. I'm thinking one here with a syringe and another one in a nurse's jacket. And I was thinking I'm going into a padded cell or anything <laughs> like that. It was, of course, <laughs> it was anything but. And the way St. Pat's is kind of segmented is you have the open unit, you have the Dean Swift unit and the secure unit. So the idea is I'd spend time in each and every single one of those departments. So in the secure unit, and not to paint a darker bleak picture, but it's the reality, 
um, your shoelaces are taken out of your shoes. It's taken out of your hoodie. It's taken out of your trousers. And obviously not to, not to be able to, or I don't have to explain in detail of why that yeah. exactly was. And probably a lighter note with that. So I, I remember I said my mum and dad came in every single day and we're out in the, uh, the garden. You have like a little 10 by 10 garden. And they used to come in and my dad used to come in with the with the football and we played a bit of football. And my mum was, you know, looking around as she has always is, inquisitive as ever. And everyone's just in normal clothes, so there's no hospital clothes. And she was looking around, and I'm like, she has a fucking questionnaire. She's going to ask something here. And she's like, how do you tell the difference between patients and visitors? I was like, oh, just look at her shoes. It's easy. And she was like, she didn't know what to laugh or cry at the time. She, I, was like, I was like, I don't know how she's going to take that. She might be coming out here balling. But we laugh in the aftermath. I was trying to make light of the situation of where I was. And it, it transpired. I went into the, the Dean Swift unit then. You afforded a bit more... Um, luxuries, if you like, your shoelaces and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you move on to the the open unit, which is, yeah, freedom of the whole hospital. So you, you can go out on daily for a couple of hours. My my choice was to go down to, to Phoenix Park just to run around for a couple of hours, just to diffuse, just to get out of my head. And I just used to, hours and hours of running just in and around Phoenix Park. So around then, the, the kind of schedule within St. Pat's was a timetable like you're in school to give you a timetable. You have your one-to-one therapy in the morning, you have a group therapy session, you have a psychologist session, you have a bit of uh, knitting or pottery or whatever else it was, you know, a bit of a lighter side, but it was just to integrate with everyone else in the hospital. And it was really, really good. It was, again, that structure piece that I took out of St. Pat's and into my everyday life now. So that's that's what it looked like from the from the outset. You're, you're a young man. You know, you like hearing that. <laughs> I'm getting on. <laughs> and uh, like, you have a lot of wisdom in relation to what's after happening in your life already. Mm-hmm. You know, are, are you passing that on? Are you, are you doing talks and yeah. schools and stuff? Yeah, I I am, and you know, it's it's not easy. As as I touched upon there earlier on, it's it's not easy. I, I find it hugely intimidating um, to share my deepest and darkest secrets. And again, I'm in a privileged position where I have an effect uh, them further field than I really do think. And uh, over the last six or seven years, I've spoken in schools, clubs, corporates, right, right around the country. And for me, it just shows that anyone can be affected by it. This idol here, Dublin superstar, whatever people are seeing me as. I'm as normal as everyone else. Yeah. We can all go through a difficult time and I'm trying to impart as much wisdom as I as I can. Um, and it's it's really, really nice, you know, to, to be able to kind of receive messages on a daily basis from people young and old to say, you've changed my life, the, the book or your talk or whatever else has made a really positive impact on my life. And genuinely, and, and I'm not just saying this and making you cork man jealous, I, 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 I trade back the All-Ireland medals for to save that one life, that one message that I get from people. Genuine, and I genuinely mean that because I've been to that point yeah. of where you don't want any part in this life and I've been to a life thereafter where genuinely every single day I'm hugely grateful when I wake up. So, you know, to be able to part... All the boss. So, just, I want to ask you one last question. Um do you know, because you were a Dublin GA player and it uh, sounds like you had a good experience with the services when you were, look, when you were ready, do you think that uh, maybe if you were a young fella from, let's say, Ballymun, because we've Peter McFurley on after the break, we were in Ballymun yesterday, do you think a young fella from Ballymun with similar issues that was looking for support mightn't have had as good experience as yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, I, I'm not... I, I'm not going to change the world. I'm not going to change a whole society, but as much as I can do to share that message that when the help is there, it works. You know, I, as I said, I receive messages off people who are 
who weren't or aren't in a privileged position as me to get into the likes of St. Pat's or these mental health services that are few and far between for people. You know, whether we like it or not, I have messages receiving from a daily basis for people saying I'm waiting six or seven months for an appointment. And the reality of it is an awful lot of those people waiting for those appointments aren't going to be there when it comes around. And for me, I see it as you break your leg, you're straight into the hospital. In my mind, you break your mind, you should be straight in. Absolutely, from from on that day. Absolutely. So, look, it's it, it's a realisation that I am lucky, but hopefully the government and everyone else that, that come with it will realise that. We were chatting beforehand uh, just in relation to what you think maybe we could do as a society mm. that could change all these things, you know, drug addiction, mental health issues that we're, we're, we're struggling with at the moment, a lot of it through COVID. And we were talking about going back into schools, you know, kids inside and what, preschool, primary schools, and just making sure that we have the right people within these environments to be able to teach children maybe a little bit more around how to handle emotions, you know, and thoughts instead of maybe telling them what to do and how to, you know, I think we need to start helping children how to process stuff and how to feel stuff and understand what's going on from a little bit more than maybe education. Education is great, it's grand, but... A lot of people go through education not being able to handle stress, you know, because they'd never been taught how to handle stress when they don't know what's on the board. So if we were taught a little bit of a mixture between both, I think it really, really benefits us. Hugely, yeah, and I, and I often see it within the regard of, as I spoke, I go into, go into schools to do talks, and when I am speaking to these, you know, adolescents, you know, from, from 13 years of age to 18 years of age, the pressures that they have in their life nowadays with social media, with everything that goes with, particularly social media, as in like, I couldn't even imagine how I would have even coped back 10 years ago, wasn't like when things were only starting to pick up, be it Instagram or Facebook and whatever else it was, you know, people feel like they need to look a certain way, act a certain way, speak it in a certain way because they're seeing this on social media and it's always, always those pressures day after day, day after day for these kids and they're none the wiser as to how to actually handle it or represent themselves or uphold themselves so again it goes back to we, we've touched upon it numerous times you know this evening in the talk it's the education piece at such an early age it can be that intervention to be able to cope with the likes of the social media pressures and everything else that goes with it from an early age in school and then beyond that well said Shane it's been an absolute pleasure round of applause for Shane please thanks guys Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.